My name is Chusei Yamada. I had been a member of the UN International Law Commission, IMC, from Japan for 17 years, from 1992 to 2009. I was a special reporter for the topic of shared natural resources and was responsible for formulating the draft articles on the law of transboundary groundwaters. I therefore like to talk on the work by the IOC for the codification of international law on transboundary groundwaters. My talk is designed to present to you the background of the issue, how the draft articles are formulated in cooperation with hydrogeologists and groundwater administrators, and main elements of the draft articles, positions of various states, and the future prospect of the draft articles. To begin with, I like to talk on the importance of the codification of international law. In order to secure justice and order, and to settle any dispute among states by peaceful means, it is essential to establish the rule of law in the world community. Such law is international law, the main sources of which are treaties and customary international law. The treaties are like contracts and bind their state parties only. The states are fully acquainted with the rights and duties under the treaties as they would carefully examine them before they become parties to them. On the other hand, the customary international law binds all the states of the international community regardless of their participation in the formulation of such customary law. The customary international law is defined as international cost custom as evidence of a general practice accepted as law in Article 38 of the Statute of the International Court of Justice. Historically speaking, in the absence of a world legislature, the international law has largely developed as customary law. However, it is often difficult to ascertain precisely what the customary rules are and there also exist differences of interpretation of such rules among states. Furthermore, furthermore there exist many lacunae in customary law. These factors present serious difficulties to the practitioners of international law. In order to remove such ambiguity of customary international law, there have been efforts for the restatement of customary rules to be agreed upon by states this process is referred to as the codification of international law. The Charter of the United Nations, in its Article 13, subparagraph 1a, provides that it is one of the important functions of the UN General Assembly to promote a codification of international law. The IRC was established in 1947 as a subsidiary organ of the UN General Assembly whose mandate is to prepare the basic documents in the form of draft articles for such codification. Article 13, subparagraph 1a of the UN Charter contains two concepts. One is codification of international law, and the other is progressive development of international law. The statute of the IRC defines them separately in its Article 15, as you see on the slide. However, the IRC found it difficult to separate one from the other in practice. 
It now engages in wider sense of codification containing both concepts and in recent years with more focus on the concept of progressive development of international law. The UN has so far adopted 13 codification treaties on the basis of the works of the ILC, including such important conventions as diplomatic and consular relations, law of treaties, law of the sea, and jurisdictional immunities of states and their properties. Now, let me turn to the question of fresh waters. The international rivers, the Rhine and the Danube in Europe, were subject to international regulations as early as in the beginning of the 19th century for the purposes of free navigation on those rivers. In fact, the river commissions, which were established for regulating navigation on these international rivers, were the precursors of the present international administrative organizations. The first time the UN dealt with transboundary freshwater resources was when it instructed the ILC in 1970 to take up the study of the law of the non-navigational uses of international watercourses. Since the mid-20th century, large projects had been undertaken along the various international rivers of the world for construction of dams and other facilities for the uses of waters of the international rivers for the purpose of drinking, electric power generation, irrigation, and others. When you have such activities upstream, they are bound to affect the downstream states, and these activities had become to threaten to cause significant adverse effects upon the downstream states. To regulate these activities, the UN adopted in 1997 the Convention on the Law of the Non-Navigational Uses of International Water Courses on the basis of the work of the ILC. While that convention covers theoretically such groundwaters as are physically linked to the international surface waters, it meant to regulate essentially surface waters. I'll come back to this point later. In the preparation of that convention, the ILC did discuss the question of whether to include groundwaters in the project. Though it recognized the need to deal also with groundwaters proper, it decided that a separate study was required for that purpose. The UN soon became aware of the rapidly expanding exploitation of groundwaters for portal, industrial, and irrigation uses in both developed and developing countries and of the resulting critical over-exploitation and pollution problems. The UN then instructed the ILC in 2001 to proceed with the work on shared natural resources, which were generally understood to include groundwaters, oil and natural gas. The ILC embarked on the work in 2002 appointing me as its special reporter on this new topic. Though there exist many similarities between the groundwaters on one hand and the oil and natural gas on the other, there are also much dissimilarities between them. Upon the recommendation of the special reporter, 
the IRC chose to adopt a step-by-step -step approach by embarking fast on the work on transboundary groundwaters at the follow-up of the 1997 Convention on International Water Courses. The codification work on the law of transboundary groundwaters required multidisciplinary process. The IRC consists of 34 members who have recognized competence in international law. As a such a body, it does not possess scientific and technical knowledge of groundwaters and expertise for proper management of these groundwaters. The United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, is the coordinating agency on the world water issue for the various UN organizations. It mobilized a team of hydrogeologists, that is, groundwater scientists, groundwater administrators, and water lawyers to assist the Special Rapporteur and the IRC. Without the untiring and valuable support, the IRC wouldn't have been able to formulate the draft articles on the law of transboundary groundwaters. During the work with the outside expert, it was found that the international lawyers often employ different concepts and terminologies from those used by experts. Great efforts have been exerted in selecting the languages to be used in the draft articles so that they could be commonly understood by scientists, administrators, lawyers, and even by ordinary peoples. The draft articles to be formulated by the ILC must be based on the firm scientific and technical evidences. Let me now explain the basic characteristic of the waters. As you see on the slide, 97.5% of the waters on Earth are salt waters, that is to say sea waters. 2.5% are fresh waters. However, about two-thirds of these fresh waters are locked in ice in such places as polar regions, and glaciers in Alps and high mountain regions of the world. Therefore, only 1% of the waters on us are the readily available fresh waters. Furthermore, merely 3% of the fresh waters are surface waters, and 97% of them are located underground. The fresh waters locked in ice are in the locations on the slides. Fresh waters stored underground exist in all the continent of the world as shown on the slide. Now, fresh waters are the life-supporting resources for the humankind. We cannot survive without drinking fresh waters. If they were not for fresh waters, we would not be able to obtain foods such as grains, vegetables, and meats, would not be able to lead healthy and sanitary life, as we would need fresh waters for dishwashing, laundry, cleaning, bathing, and so forth. Furthermore, there exists no alternative resource to replace fresh waters. Fresh waters are so important for us, and they are mostly located underground. 
rapid expansion of exploitation of groundwaters took place from 1950 in industrialized states and in 1970 in the developing states. Currently, 50% of portable waters, 40% of industrial waters, and 20% of irrigation waters are supplied by groundwaters. They are the most extracted simple raw material in the world. This slide shows how groundwaters are used in different regions. For example, they are mainly used in the Russian Federation for domestic purposes, in India for agriculture, and in Central Asia for industries. Through the process of filtering by soil, groundwaters are usually of high purity and contain various nutritious minerals. Bottled mineral waters are groundwaters. The slide shows the mineral water component of one of such waters, avian mineral water. The science of surface waters is very old. You might have seen one of these Roman aqueducts on the slide, which are located in southern Europe from Spain to Turkey. They were built from BC 3rd century to AD 3rd century by the Roman Empire to transport waters from their sources to the cities. Building of these aqueducts was possible because the science of surface waters, hydrology, was already highly developed, developed then. The humankind had used groundwaters by digging wells since the time immemorial. On the other hand, the science of groundwaters is a rather new science. The science of the laws of groundwater flow dates back only 150 years when Andy Darcy carried out an experiment in 1856 on a fountain in Dijon, France. I'll explain later the phenomenon proved by his experiment where groundwaters shoot up. The real development of the science of groundwaters, which is now termed hydrogeology, a combination of hydrology and geology, has taken place rather recently. Groundwaters are distributed widely in the world. Many of them are shared by neighboring states, as shown in the groundwater world map with political boundaries. In Western and Southeastern Europe, 145 transboundary groundwaters are so far identified. In North America, five. In Central America, 29. In Caribbean, four. And in South America, 29. In South America, there exists a famous Galani aquifer system, which is transboundary under the territories of Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, and Uruguay. As this region receives a lot of rainfall, this is recharging groundwaters. In Africa, 40 transboundary groundwaters are identified. They exist here also 
another famous transboundary groundwater system named Nubian Sandstone Aquifer System under the territories of Chad, Egypt, Libya, and Sudan. This is non-recharging groundwaters, as it is located in an arid region. In Asia, only 12 transboundary groundwaters are so far identified. Further research has yet to be carried out. Let us now examine the mechanism of global hydrological cycle. When the rain falls on the surface of the Earth, some of the rainwaters evaporate back to the atmosphere. Some run off the surface, join the river, flow to the ocean, and then evaporate back to the atmosphere. Some are absorbed by plants, some infiltrate the soil and becomes groundwaters. My last explanation is not entirely precise. In a temperate zone where rain falls regularly, the soil is usually wet when you dig a hole in the soil. But the waters in the shallow soil are not necessarily groundwaters. So it might be technically possible to separate such waters from the soil. It would cost a lot and it would not be economically viable to obtain waters by such process. Then what are groundwaters? Let us examine the cross-section of groundwaters. You can identify two kinds of groundwaters in the diagram. Let me first take up the lower or deeper groundwaters. The lower one is called the confined groundwaters. The waters are stored in the geological formation consisting of such materials as sand, grape, gravel, rock, and others. This geological formation is both underlain and upperlaid by the less permeable layers and function as a container of the waters. The waters contained there are under the pressure more than the atmospheric pressure. Therefore, when a well is drilled and reaches the geological formation, the waters shoot up because of the differences of the pressure. This is a phenomenon which Andy Darushi found in his experiment. This is the phenomenon which you can observe also in the cases of oil and natural gas. Let me now take up the upper or shallow one in the diagram, which is called the unconfined groundwaters. In this case, the geological formation is only underlain and not upperlaid by the less permeable layer. The water in this geological formation are under the pressure equal to that of the atmospheric pressure. When a well reaches the formation, the waters would not shoot up but they can be pumped out. In both cases, the waters can be easily extracted as they are. In order to manage groundwaters properly, we must regulate both the waters and the geological formation. From now on, I will use the scientific term of aquifers instead of the term of groundwaters, which is commonly used. The term aquifer denotes both the geological formation and the waters contained in it. What are activities which affect aquifers? First, utilization of waters. 
over-extraction of waters would lower the water table in the aquifer and deplete the resources and may also destroy the geological formation. Second, activities other than utilization of waters. Activities on the surface, such as agriculture using chemical fertilizer and pesticide, drainage and waste dumping might pollute aquifers below. Once aquifer is polluted, pollutants stay there and it will be extremely difficult to clean it. Paving and construction works on the surface as well as underground might block the recharge and discharge process of aquifer or destroy the geological formation. I like to mention that city of Kyoto, Japan has a huge aquifer underneath. This aquifer supported the city as our old capital for 1,000 years. In 1960s, the resident there came to notice the lowering of the water table in some parts of the city, and they had to dig deeper to get waters. It coincided with the time of construction of subway networks there. It is considered that the subway construction broke the recharge process as well as destroyed some of the geological formation. In case of transboundary aquifers, these activities in one state would adversely affect its neighboring states which share the same aquifers by reducing the latter's share of extraction of waters or by polluting aquifers through proliferation process. I discussed earlier that there are recharging aquifers and non-recharging aquifers. Non-recharging aquifers are now found in the red-shaded acid regions of the map on the slide. The representative of them is Nubian sandstone aquifer system in North Africa. Those regions used to be temperate zones thousands and millions of years ago. The waters stored there were rainfalls of those times. They are not getting any non-negligible recharge contemporarily. We could confirm it by radioactive tracers. Since 1960s, radioactive materials of cesium and tritium emitted from nuclear tests and krypton from nuclear industries are floating in the atmosphere. If these aquifers had received recharge from rainfalls during the last 50 years, radioactive tracers would have been found in the aquifers. The investigation proves that it was not the case. Any exploitation of these non-recharging aquifers would mean depletion, as are the cases of mineral resources or oil and natural gas. The ILC has been provided with these variable scientific and technical characters and factors of the aquifers by the experts. It also found ample state practices and almost 400 relevant treaties, general, regional, and bilateral, on the basis of which customary rules could be identified. The states have also shown key interest in the IRC's work as aquifers exist in almost all states, 
and the overwhelming majority of states possesses transboundary aquifers with their neighboring states. Those states transmitted their, their valuable inputs and observation to the ILC. Taking into account the advices of experts and observations from government, the ILC formulated a final set of 19 draft articles on the law of transboundary aquifers in 2008. The text of the draft articles is appended to the UN General Assembly Resolution A stroke RES stroke 63 stroke 124 of 2008. The ILC has also made available the detailed commentaries to each of the draft articles in Chapter 4 of the ILC report of 2008, UN document A stroke 63 stroke 10. Both documents can be downloaded from the UN website. It is recalled that the ILC took 24 years to complete the formulation of the draft articles on the non-navigational uses of international water courses. It was rather a rare case for the ILC that the codification work on transboundary aquifers was completed in such a short period of six years. It shows that the ILC was fully aware of the current critical situation of aquifers and of the urgent need to establish legal framework for proper management of transboundary aquifers in order to achieve the objectives of equitable and reasonable utilization, protection of environment and international cooperation. I will now take up some salient points of the draft articles. Article 1 scope. The scope of the application of the draft articles is A. Utilization of transboundary aquifers. B. Other activities that have or are likely to have an impact upon such aquifers. And C. Measures for the protection, preservation and management of such aquifers. The concept of the paragraph B was not included in the case of the 1997 Water Course Convention. In the case of aquifers, activities other than utilization of aquifers, which are conducted above them, such as those causing pollution to the aquifers or harmful to normal functioning of aquifers by blocking or destroying zoological formation of the aquifers, must be regulated. I'll come back to this point later in relation to Article 6. Article 2, Use of Terms. Article 2 is a definition article. Aquifer means both a geological formation which serves as a container and the water contained in the saturated zone of the formation. It is necessary to include the geological formation in the definition of aquifer in order to preserve pre proper functioning of aquifer. It is also necessary to include the geological formation in order to regulate its own utilization, such as storage, disposal of waste, or a new experimental technique for carbon dioxide sequestration. Definition of recharging aquifer is also drafted. The threshold 
of negligibility is floating because even non-recharging aquifers receive minimal re recharge even now as the case of oil and natural gas where fossilization process is still under progress slowly. General principles Articles 3 to 9 of Part 2 set out general principles such as sovereignty, reasonable and equitable utilization, obligation not to cause significant harm, and international cooperation. Now, Article 3, Sovereignty of Aquifer States. This article provides that each aquifer state has sovereignty over the portion of a transboundary aquifer located within its territory. I have received a critical comment from some international lawyers for the inclusion of sovereignty clause, which might, in their view, diminish the value of the whole exercise. I do share some of their apprehension. However, we must squarely face the current state of affairs. It was the United Nations which passed the resolution permanent sovereignty over natural resources, 1803 at uh, 17th General Assembly in 1962. Many aquifer states insisted the inclusion of sovereignty article. It is noted that second sentence of Article 3 states that an aquifer state shall exercise its sovereignty in accordance with international law and the present draft articles. I do believe that the current draft article 3 represents an appropriately balanced text. Article 4, equitable and reasonable utilization. One of the essential principles is equitable and reasonable utilization of aquifers. Factors relevant to such equitable and reasonable utilization are listed in article 5. The principle of equitable utilization among the states sharing the same resources is identical as in the case of the International Water Course Convention. However, the principle of reasonable utilization, though the same term is used, is quite different here. The principle of sustainable utilization can apply only to renewable resources. International law has developed the precise legal concept of sustainability in relation to marine living resources. You find the principle of sustainable utilization in, all, in almost all the fisheries conventions. This principle is clearly defined as to take measures on the best scientific evidence to maintain or restore populations of harvested species at levels which can produce the maximum sustainable yield in Article 119, subparagraph 1a of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. What it means is to maintain the size of the population of a particular stock of fish that can produce the maximum catches year after year. Science tells us that such a level is somewhat below the maximum population of a particular fish stock which the nature can afford to hold. Now, this principle could be applied to other renewable resources. 
1997 International Water Course Convention applied this principle and defined it as optimal and sustainable utilization in its Article 5, subparagraph 1. It meant that the water course states are obliged to limit the amount of useful water to that of recharge and keep the river flowing permanently. When we learned the dynamics of aquifers, it, be it became clear that this sustainability principle could not apply to both recharging and non-recharging aquifers. For non-recharging aquifers, there is no room whatsoever to apply this principle, as any utilization would lead to depletion of the resources. Even for recharging aquifers, recharge is, in most cases, just a fraction of the large volume of waters accumulated over 100,000 years, and state could not be deprived of the use of such accumulated resources, while the state of non-recharging aquifers were free to use them. Accordingly, Article 4 does not refer to sustainability at all and provides that a recharging aquifer shall not be utilized at a level that would prevent continuance of its effective functioning. Meanwhile, however, the term sustainability has become a sort of catchphrase for many environmentalists. Taking into account their positions, the term sustainable development is inserted in Article 7, which uh, talks about general obligation to cooperate. Article 6, obligation not to cause significant harm. Another important principle is the obligation not to cause significant harm to other state. This is the cardinal principle of international law. This principle applies not only to adverse effect to other states caused by utilization of aquifers, but also to adverse effect through aquifers to other states caused by other activities as defined in subparagraph B of Article 1. However, utilization of aquifers and other activities are activities necessary for the society. Other states, therefore, have obligation to bear certain harm unless such harm does not go beyond the level of significant harm. The concept of significant is relative and could not be defined in abstract. However, in view of fragility of aquifers and difficulty of removing pollutants from aquifers once affected, the threshold of significant is much lower than in the case of surface waters. In relation to this article, Article 15 also provides consultation procedure for planned activity which may affect a transboundary aquifer and thereby may have a significant adverse effect upon another state. Articles 7 to 15, International Cooperation. Yet another important principle in the international cooperation. The key to the proper management of aquifers is the international cooperation among aquifer states. The draft articles 
provide various measures beginning from regular exchange of data and information, monitoring and establishment of joint mechanism, joint management mechanism. Article 16, technical cooperation. The draft articles also regulate non-aquifer states. In particular, all states are required to promote technical cooperation with developing states in the scientific, educational, technical, legal, and other fields for the protection and management of aquifers. Article 16, I do believe that Japan, although not a transboundary aquifer state, would be able to play a significant role in this field. The relationship between the present draft articles and the 1997 International Water Course Convention and other treaties are left for future negotiation when the final status of the present draft articles becomes definite. It's generally understood that the 1997 International Water Course Convention covers the groundwaters that are linked to international water courses. Its Article 2A provides that water course means a system of surface waters and groundwaters constituting, by virtue of their physical relationship, a unitary whole and normally flowing into a common terminus. It is not clear what kind of relationship between surface waters and groundwaters is envisaged here. Now the present draft articles covers all the transboundary aquifers, regardless of whether they are recharged by or discharged to the international water course. It must also be pointed out that, according to the definition of the present draft articles, recharge and discharge zones are outside of the aquifers. The IOC considered that all the aquifers possess distinct characteristics different from those of surface waters. For instance, the Nubian sandstone aquifer system is linked to the river Nile, south of Khartoum. However, the bulk of the Nubian system has only the characteristics of non-recharging aquifer. Accordingly, that aquifer system must be regulated by the present draft articles. The regulations of the present draft articles are generally much broader and stricter than the 1997 International Water Course Convention. Dual application of the two instruments to a particular aquifer would normally not cause any difficulty. However, if it does, we would have to draft a provision to regulate the relationship between the two instruments. The UN General Assembly received the draft articles favorably in 2008. I'm convinced that the General Assembly recognized that the draft articles are not only scientifically and technically sound, but also incorporate the positions of the majority of the member states of the United Nations. It adopted the resolution 63-124 entitled the Law of Transboundary Aquifers by consensus on December 11, 2008. The, the resolution took note of the draft articles, encouraged the states concerned to make appropriate bilateral or regional arrangements 
of the proper management of the transboundary aquifers, taking into account the provisions of the draft articles, and further decided to include in the provisional agenda of its 66th session in 2011 an item entitled the law of transboundary aquifers with a view to examining inter alia the question of the form that might be given to the draft articles. I'd like now to show you one of the most advanced international cooperation for the management of transboundary aquifer. This is the bird eye view of Geneva, Switzerland. City of Geneva and its suburbs, including French territories, take 80% of their water requirement from Lac Leman, uh, Lake Geneva, and another 20% from the aquifer below. The aquifer is transboundary of the Swiss-France border uh, line runs through it. There are 15 wells, 10 in Swiss side and 5 in French side. Annual extraction of waters increase, increased from 8 million metric tons in 1960s to 14 million metric tons in 1980, and the water table was down by 8 meters. Continuation of water extraction at this level would further lower the water table and might destroy the geological formation. In order to, to cope with this situation, Frank Swiss Genevese Aquifer Authority was jointly established by Canton de Genève and the Prefet de Haute-Savoie. The authority has been undertaking the artificial recharge. It takes waters from River Arv, treats them and spray over the aquifer. The authority now makes artificial recharge in the order of 8 million metric tons and extract 18 million metric tons annually. Meanwhile, the water table has recovered to the level of 1950s. You may wonder why the authority resort to the artificial recharge rather than using the waters from River Arab directly for drinking. The reason is that by making use of natural process, you can obtain waters of better quality at lower cost. Let me also tell you an example of the current grave situation of aquifers in the world. Wheat productions of three northwestern states of India, Punjab, Haryana, and Rajasthan, had achieved rapid increases by the utilization of aquifers, and for the first time, India became self-sufficient in wheat since its independence in 1947. However, farmers are now in trouble in extracting sufficient waters due to the lowering of the water table and are not able to find financing of dipping or digging wells deeper. Anal analysis conducted by gravity observation satellite GRACE revealed that 109 cubic kilometers of waters, which is equivalent to four times of the water volume 
of black lemon were extracted over the last six years, and the aquifer is currently in precarious condition. UN General Assembly is to make a decision next year on the status of the draft articles. I'm hoping that states would realize the grave situation of many transboundary aquifers, increase understanding and appreciation of the draft articles, and act in the best way to properly manage their transboundary aquifers through international cooperation. I thank you for your indulgences, and I acknowledge the various organizations which provided me with excellent slide materials for my presentation.